Statistics vary. Barna's recent study says 60% of the people who make their decision for Christ do it before the age of 18. One other study suggests that 85% of the people who come to Christ do it before the age of 20. And Barna's study says that 8%, only 8% of the people choose Jesus after the age of 50. In other words, if you've got some gray hair, you've said no to God enough times along the way to have a very hard heart, and your odds of getting saved become pretty remote. Bad odds. If my Bible's right, you will never lose your conscious awareness. And the decision you make while you are physically alive determines where you spend forever. I don't do uh, ten verses of just as I am. It's not my style. I won't play on your emotions to bring you to Christ. It's not my style. I'm going to present you with an opportunity to make a conscious, willful decision to put Christ in your life. There are three parts to the word belief. One, the devils believe and tremble, so intellectual agreement is not enough to solve the, your sin problem. You have to believe it's true, but believing it's true does not solve the problem. There's another part. It's called repentance. Jesus used the word 24 times. You have to stop sinning to be saved. None of us are. What you have to do is turn from the singular sin, the sin of thinking you're okay on your own merit, and when you repent of any notion that you think you can stand before God on your own merit, then you've repented. That's what repentance is. So you believe it's true, repent of any notion that you'll be okay on your own merit, and then the third component. Guys, this will be tough for you, but let's be brides at a wedding. Okay, here we go. The preacher says, Will you take this woman to have and to hold, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do you part, will you? And your husband-to-be says, what do you mean by that? How sick? How poor? What do you mean by that? Basis for a relationship? So Jesus says, follow me. Use the term 19 times. And if your response is, when? How far? Under what circumstances? And so when you believe... Repent of any notion, you'll be okay on your own merit, and within your current limited framework of understanding, say, yeah, Jesus, wherever, whenever. Let's go. You will be, what the Bible says, born again. We will come back to another message right after this music break.
One thing I especially admire about Jesus Christ is that he was always laying things right on the line. He was a radical. And because he was a radical, he forced people into a decision. Jesus did not allow people to take a neutral stance for him. In fact, he one time said, if you're not for me, you're against me. You see, you just can't be neutral. You can't just pass him off. He wouldn't let you. He forced you into a decision concerning him. One day Jesus was talking to the scribes and he said unto them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And really, he just brought it right down to where you live. Whose son is Jesus Christ? Well, Mary and Joseph got caught messing around. And so they made up a story. Or, some young guy in Nazareth and Mary got together and Mary made up a story and told Joseph to cover the whole thing. Or, he was the son of God. Now, if he is the son of Joseph or some unnamed young man in Nazareth, then we might as well close the book and go home. There's no sense of gathering together. There's no sense of worshiping God together or building churches or anything else. The whole thing is a big farce. And all of those people through the centuries who have believed in Christ have been actually duped. But if he is the son of God, then you had better pay attention to what he had to say because your life depends upon it. If he was not the son of God, then he was the biggest phony who ever walked on the face of the earth. He's the greatest liar and the biggest hoax who has ever lived. You know... Whether or not you believe in him as the son of God, you do have to acknowledge with all honesty 
that he has done more to t change the history of mankind than any other single individual who has ever lived. He so altered the history of man that we even date today our calendars from the day of his birth. So whether or not you want to believe in him as the son of God, at least you have to acknowledge that which he has done to influence human history more than any other man who has ever lived. You see, it boils down to you. You have to make a personal judgment concerning him. Well, my mother thinks he's the son of God. That won't do for you. What think ye of Christ? What do you think? It is a personal judgment that each of you have to make concerning Jesus Christ. Not only has he done more to alter the events of human history than any other man, but also no one has ever come into the world with more advanced announcements than Jesus Christ. For centuries before he was born, men were writing about him. Men were laying out facts and details concerning his life. They told us where he was going to be born. They told us how he was going to live. They told us how he was going to die, who he would be put to death with. They told us where he was going to be buried. And fact after fact after fact and detail after detail after detail was given concerning this man before he was ever born. No one has ever had so much written about him before he was born. No one has ever had so much advanced publicity than Jesus Christ. And this advanced publicity is very interesting to us tonight. For really, what chance is there that someone could come tripping along in history and fulfill all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he was born, when he lived, when he died, and when he rose again. What are the chances? Now, it is interesting when you deal with prophecy, you can actually measure prophecy by a scientific law called the law of compound probabilities. Now, let us say that I predict that we're going to have an earthquake in California. That really doesn't make me a prophet. Because we no doubt are going to have an earthquake in California. If, if things go true to form, California has got a lot of different faults that are, are working and everybody says we're going to have an earthquake. So that really doesn't make me a prophet. Chances are my prediction would be correct. But if I say we are going to have an earthquake in California on March the 12th. Then you see I'm narrowing things down. The chances now of my prediction coming to pass are greatly multiplied. If I say we're going to have an earthquake in California on March the 12th and it is going to be 7.2 on the Richter scale. I all of a sudden am expanding all the more the chances of my prophecy not coming to pass. If I say it's going to take place at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, March the 12th, 7.2 on the Richter scale, and the epicenter will be in Newport Beach. 
then I am broadening all the more the chances of it coming to pass. And if I say there will be a loss of 7,280 lives, then you see I'm expanding more and more the chances and I am having actually more and more of a chance of being proved a false prophet every time I lay something on it. The chance of it coming to pass becomes more and more remote every time I add something to it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that related to Jesus Christ. His birthplace, his life, his ministry, details of his life, over 300 prophecies that were completely and accurately fulfilled. What are the chance factors of these 300 prophecies being fulfilled by accident? Now, another illustration of this scientific law of compound probabilities. Let us say that one man in 10 is bald-headed. Law of average will get you. How many men would we have to line up against the wall to find a bald-headed man? At random. Chances are, if we line ten men against the wall at random, if one in ten is bald-headed, we should have one bald-headed man. Now let us assume that one man in ten is blind in his right eye. Now how many men do we have to line up against the wall to get a man who is blind in his right eye and bald-headed? Well, according to the averages, we would need a hundred men lined against the wall. Out of the hundred men lined against the wall, you could pull out ten bald-headed men. From the ten bald-headed men, you should be able to find one who is blind in his right eye. Now let us say that one man in ten is missing his left thumb. Now how many men do we have to line against the wall to find a bald-headed man blind in his right eye and missing his left thumb? Theoretically, we would need a thousand men at random. From the thousand men at random, we could get the hundred bald-headed men. From the hundred bald-headed men, uh, we could get the uh, ten who are missing their left thumb. And from the ten missing their left thumb, we could get the one who is also blind in his right eye. And so we could get one man who would fulfill all three requirements. But every time you're adding a stipulation, you must multiply the number of men that you need to fulfill it by the factor, by the chance factors or the variables for that stipulation. So it is possible to take the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, determine the chance factors at random of their being fulfilled, and then you can determine what the chance factor was that he could have come along and accidentally fulfilled all of these prophecies. Or how many men would you have to have before you could find one who would fulfill all of the requirements of these prophecies? Let's start. Micah, the fifth chapter, the second verse said, And thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the provinces of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he who is to rule my people Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. The first prophecy that we want to look at is that of his birthplace, because this immediately eliminates most of the people. 
What is the chance of an individual being born in the city of Bethlehem? How many of you tonight were born in Bethlehem? Chances are none of you were. We don't have enough people. Now, how can you determine the chance factor of a be person being born in Bethlehem? Well, the best thing is to take the average population of Bethlehem with the average population of the world from the time of the prophecy, and you can determine. And from the records, the best they can determine, the average population of Bethlehem from the time of the prophecy of Micah to the present day has been less than 7,100 people. It's just a little village. It's growing now. But from that time, the average population has been less than 7,100 and the population of the earth less than 2 billion. So there's only one chance in 280,000 of a person being born in the city of Bethlehem. So chances are we could gather people by random. If we gathered 280,000 men by random, chances are we could find one of the 280,000 and he'd say, yeah, I was born in Bethlehem. Now, the Bible said that there would be a man that would go before him, a forerunner who would prepare his way. Now, how many men in history do you know that have had a, has had a man going before him preparing his way? Not very many. Maybe one in a thousand. But just to be conservative, let's say one in a hundred. Now, it's said that he would make his triumphant entry on a donkey. How many kings in history do you know who made their triumphant entry on donkeys? Most of the time, the kings made their triumphant entries on chariots or in white stallions or something like that. But not often a donkey, I'm sure. But let's say one in a hundred, just to be conservative. Now it's said that he would be betrayed by a friend. Most people are betrayed by, by their enemies, not often by friends. But then it said the friend that would betray him would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, how many men in history do you know who were betrayed by friends for 30 pieces of silver? And then it said the silver would be thrown down in the house of the Lord and it would be used to buy a potter's field. Now, how many men in history do you know who were betrayed by friends for 30 pieces of silver and the silver was thrown down in the Lord's house and then used to buy a potter's field? You see, every stipulation that is added compounds the chance factors. Until a science class in Pasadena College several years ago took as a semester project the determination of certain prophecies by random from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and they sought to discover what were the chance factors of eight prophecies being fulfilled. How many men would you have to have before you found one who would fulfill all eight requirements? And using very conservative estimates, they came up with one chance in 2.8 times 10, followed by 28 zeros. 
But to make it more simple, they knocked off the 2.8. So they cut it in thirds and just said one chance in 10 followed by 28 zeros. Now, in order to be more accurate, we should subtract from that the population factor, which they have estimated to be some 88 billion people. But for uh, easy math's sake, let's say 100 billion people, or 1 in 10 to the 11th power, subtracted from 10 to the 28th power, it would give you 1 man in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, you'd have to have 10 men to the 17th power in order to get a man who could fulfill all eight requirements. That's your chance factor. If you had this many silver dollars, you could cover the entire land surface of Texas two feet thick with silver dollars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars and blindfold a fellow and let him start roaming across the state of Texas and one day reach down into that pile of silver dollars and pull up one and take the blindfold off and open his hand and the chance that he would pull out the silver dollar that you had marked would be the same chance that Jesus could have fulfilled those eight prophecies by accident. And so then they took 16 prophecies and assuming that the ratio was the same in the next 16, it would be now one chance in 10 to the 45th Power, because you've already reduced or taken off the population factor. You don't have to take it off twice. Now, if you had this many silver dollars, you could make a ball of silver dollars that would go 30 times further out than the sun. Now, the sun is 93 million miles away. And you can make a ball that it would extend 30 times as far as the sun. Now, blindfold a guy and equip him with scuba gear and let him dive into this ball of silver dollars and swim around and swim around for centuries. And then finally one day grab hold of one of the silver dollars and surface and hold it up and the chance that he would come up with the silver dollar that you had marked would be the same chance factor that Jesus could have just fulfilled the 16 prophecies. So then just to take it totally out of the mental ability to comprehend, they took 48 prophecies. And now you have one chance in 10 to the 157th power. <laughs> That's a number that is so vast that we can't even conceive it. 10 followed by 157 zeros. Now, you couldn't make a ball out of silver dollars. 
the universe is just not big enough. And so we have to find something smaller now to make our ball. And the smallest thing that we really know for sure. Now they, they say that maybe there are even smaller particles than electrons. But uh, for all practical purposes, an electron is small enough for us tonight. An electron is one, well, it's actually two and a half quintillionth of an inch long. In other words, if you lined up electrons single file one inch long, it would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power electrons. Or two and a half quintillion. If you tried to count them, it would take you 19 million years counting day and night at the rate of 250 a minute. <laughs> Electron is pretty small. Now, can you imagine how many electrons you could put in a one inch cube? Say you made a solid a cube, solid cube out of electrons. Man, you could cram a lot of electrons into that. In fact, to count them would take you 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years at the rate of 250 a minute counting day and night. Now, let's come back to this number 10 to the 157th power. Let us say we had electrons to work with and we had this many electrons. How big a ball do you think we could make? Out of electrons. The largest thing we know is the universe. The universe is estimated to be some six billion light years in radius. Or from one end to the other, 12 billion light years. Now, light, we know, travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. So the time it takes a ray of light to get from the earth out to the edge of space, six billion years. At that speed of 186,000 miles a second. Now, that's pretty fast. If you could jump on a ray of light, you could actually circle the earth. What, 25 about seven and a half times in one second. Imagine. That's moving. Stay on that ray of light for six billion years and you get out to the edge of space. Now, if we had 10 to the 157th power electrons, we could make a ball that would be as large as the universe in which we live. In fact, if we could go into mass production and make 500 of these balls every minute, we could go on making these balls for the next 6 billion years. And then we could do that 10 to the 10th time power over again and still have 10 to the 32nd power electrons left over. Now mark one of these electrons. 
Well, you can't even see it. Random factor of one man fulfilling the 48 prophecies. 10 to the 157th power. But there wasn't just 48. There were over 300. But someone says, well, the prophecies are all so vague. You know, after all, when a person lives, the prophecies are so vague. You say, well, look, here's what it says. You know, and you can fit it in. All right. It said he would be born in Bethlehem. Tell me how vague is that? (laughs) If he were born in Nazareth, he'd never make it. Born in Hebron, Jerusalem, Bethel, he's out. There's really, to me, nothing vague about being born in Bethlehem. That sounds to me like it's pretty straight on. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That doesn't sound very vague. What if he had said 29? Then Jesus would be out. What if he said 20? Jesus would be out. It said they would pierce his hands and his feet. What if they only pierced his hands? Jesus would be out. Really, they're not so vague. They're pretty precise. In fact, if you talk about precise prophecies, one of the most precise prophecies I know is the prophecy in Daniel, the ninth chapter, where Daniel, by the understanding of the reading of the book of Jeremiah, knew that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity were about over. Now, the Lord had prophesied that the nation Judah was going to go into captivity to Babylon. Jeremiah said, you're going to be there for 70 years and then God is going to bring you back into your land. Now, Daniel, who was in Babylon, taken in the first captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and was one of the leaders, now that the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over, Daniel realized from the records and the prophecies of Jeremiah that the 70 years were about over, and because he was in a position of governmental authority, he felt that perhaps God would have him to do something in the repatriating of the people back to the land. So Daniel began to fast and pray and wait upon God for whatever God might have for him to do. And while he was waiting upon God, the angel Gabriel appeared unto him and said, O Daniel, thou art greatly loved of God. And when you started to pray and seek God, God sent me to tell you the things concerning the nation Israel. And no one understand this, Daniel. From the time the commandment goes forth to restore and to rebuild, build Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or a period of 483 years. Now, at the time that Daniel wrote this prophecy, the city of Jerusalem was in shambles. Nebuchadnezzar Adon, the general of Babylon had taken a troop of men. They'd gone to Jerusalem. They burnt the temple with fire. They burnt all of the palaces and then they systematically tore down the walls of the city of Jerusalem, burning things and making really havoc and wreckage of the city. And the city was wasted. But the Lord said, when the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince will be seven sevens and sixty two sevens or four hundred and eighty three years. 
Now he was living in the area where they were still using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days to the year. So if you take the 483 years at 360 days to the year, you actually have 173,880 days. Now, if God is accurate and God's word is accurate, then we should be able to know the day the Messiah was going to come because from the day that the commandment would go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, would be 173,880 days if God knew what he was talking about. When the archaeologists were digging in the palace of Shushan, they found archaeological, they found records actually by which they know what date was the first day of April that year. Because on the first day of April, in the year 445 BC, King Artaxerxes gave the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. March 14, 445 BC. Now, starting from March 14th, 445 B.C., the first of Nisan, actually, in the, in, the, in the record. Starting at that date and counting on the calendar 173,880 days brings us to the date of April 6th, 32 A.D., now, when Jesus was crucified, there was darkness over the land from the sixth hour unto the ninth hour. And it is assumed that the darkness over the land was caused by a total eclipse in that area. And, of course, we are able easily to determine when and where total eclipses are going to take place because the movement of the sun and the moon are constant. So we can tell you in advance, years in advance, where the eclipses are going to take place, when, what dates, the time of the day, and when there are going to be total eclipses. And going back, we can do the same in history. And we know that a total eclipse took place that week of April the 6th. at 12 o'clock until 3 o'clock there in Israel. So, going back from the total eclipse to the Sunday before, you have the date April 6th was the Sunday before the total eclipse or the Sunday before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days from March fourteen, four forty five BC to April six, thirty two AD, taking into account the leap years and uh, the other factors. Now, on April the sixth, thirty two AD, Jesus said to his disciples, Go over into the city, and you'll find in a certain place a donkey that is tied, untie him and bring him to me. And when the men say to you, why are you untying that donkey? You just tell them, well, the Lord needs him. And so they went over in the city and where he told them there, they saw the donkey that was tied. And as they started untying him, the fellow standing there said, hey, what are you doing untying that donkey? They said, the Lord needs him. 
And so they brought the donkey to Jesus there in Bethany and Jesus sat on the donkey and started riding towards Jerusalem as the disciples began to lay their coats in the pathway as they began to wave palm branches and they began to quote the 118th Psalm which is a messianic Psalm and they said, Save now, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word save now in Hebrew is Hosanna. And so the disciples were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A quotation from the 118th Psalm, which is a messianic psalm. Peter quotes it as such because the psalm says, this is the stone which was set of not of you builders, but God has made it to be the chief cornerstone. Save now, save now. Read the 118th Psalm and the prophecy concerning Jesus. And the disciples were crying out, this messianic prophecy, save now, save now. And the Pharisees, when they heard what the disciples were saying, turned to Jesus and said, Lord, you better rebuke those disciples. That's blasphemous. And Jesus said unto the Pharisees, let me tell you something, fellas. If these disciples would at this time altogether hold their peace and be quiet, these very stones would cry out. Jesus went riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, even as Zacharias said, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, but he is lowly. He's sitting on a donkey, the foal of an ass. But Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem, and so he came back out to the Mount of Olives, and looking back over the city of Jerusalem, he began to weep, and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If thou hadst only known the things that belong to thy peace, in this thy day. This was the first day Jesus had ever allowed any public acclamation of himself as the Messiah. Earlier in his ministry, when he had fed the 5,000, they tried to by force take him and make him king, but his time was not yet come and he disappeared out of their midst. This is the first time he allowed any public acclamation. And at this time, he said, if these people would quiet, these very stones would cry out. And then weeping, he said, if you only knew the things that belong to your peace in this thy day, but now they are hid from your eyes. But going back to the prophecy of Daniel, what did he say? He said, but the Messiah will be cut off without receiving the kingdom. Wild. Daniel predicted the very day that the Messiah would come, but then he declared the Messiah would be cut off without receiving his kingdom and the Jews would end up by being dispersed. And thus the prophecy of Daniel was literally fulfilled to the day. Now to me, there's nothing vague about that. Now, this story of the resurrection of the dead what must we assume? Well, very easily, it's either true or it's not. Either Jesus rose or he didn't rise. And if he didn't rise from the dead, really, then we have to assume that the disciples got together and made up a real neat story. And they said, okay, guys, you got to swear. Let's take our blood and we'll mix our blood and we'll all of us swear, you know, rub our wrist. Nobody 
Nobody but nobody squeals. We hang to this story, fellas. We all of us vow that it's true. We're going to all say that we saw the resurrected Christ. And so they went out and they began to say, hey, Jesus is alive. We saw him. Now, one by one, they took these fanatics who were saying that they saw the resurrected Jesus and they put them to death violently because they were saying that Jesus was alive. He rose again. First of all, James, they, they took and cut his head off with a sword because he said Jesus rose from the dead. Later, they took Peter and crucified him upside down because he said Jesus rose from the dead. Later, they severed Paul the apostle's head because he said, I saw the risen Lord too. Another one of the disciples, they tied by his feet to a horse and they drove the horse through the city until his body was just dragged to death on the streets. And each one of these disciples, with the exception of John, suffered a violent death because they were all declaring the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him. Now, wouldn't it be easier for your position of unbelief if just one of these guys had cracked? Hey, hey, stop, fellas. Let me tell you the truth. It's all a big hoax. <laughs> if just one of them had done that, then you would have a position for your unbelief. You could say, yeah, but look at this guy. You see, when he really faced a man, he, he told the truth. But these stubborn, hard-headed guys, not one of them confessed. So Peter said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we declared unto you the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but we were actually eyewitnesses of his glory. Man, I saw with my eyes. But then he said something very interesting. He said, but we have the more sure word of prophecy, what I was talking about earlier. Really more sure than what I can see with my eyes is the fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies totally far beyond any chance factor. The more sure word of prophecy. And so... Ultimately, and always, it comes back to this. It's your judgment decision. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? The son of God? Or the son of some man? And your decision and your belief determines your eternal destiny. With all of the evidence to show that he is indeed the Son of God, it seems to me awful foolish to believe anything else. Finally, you have the witness of the majority of people here tonight 
and millions of people throughout the world who will say to you, He is the Son of God. He is alive today. I have experienced His power in my life. How can you account for the dramatic changes that take place in people's lives if it's all a hoax? If He was just a fraud? If He was a bastard? And yet that's what you are saying if you do not believe that he is the Son of God. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? If he is indeed the Son of God, then tonight there is hope for this world. We have a glorious future to look forward to. It isn't all empty and vain and dark and hopeless. But there's a bright tomorrow coming. He promised it to us. If he is the son of God, then surely you should commit your life to him. You have everything to gain. And nothing to lose except your old, rotten, sinful self. Which is sort of nice to get rid of. Shall we pray? We thank you, Father, for the evidence that you have given to us concerning your Son, Jesus Christ that you spoke about it so many years in advance, giving the details and the facts so that when he did come, there needed to be no doubt concerning the truth about Jesus. May we tonight, Lord, open our hearts and our lives to receive the truth and to receive Jesus Christ into our lives as our Lord, as our Savior. While listening to this tape, perhaps God's Spirit has been talking to your heart. If you felt the need to draw closer to your Creator, why not start today? God has provided a way for man to enter into a relationship with Him forever through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The Bible says that as many as receive him, to them give he power to become the children of God. You too can receive him right now by asking him to forgive you of your sins and asking him to come into your life and to be Lord and Savior of your life. Now, if you'd like to receive Jesus Christ into your life today, you can do so through a simple little prayer. Just open up your heart and Repeat this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I believe that you died on a cross for my sins. Please forgive me of all of my sins. Please come into my heart and into my life. Please make my life acceptable unto you. Thank you, Lord, for your gift of eternal life. 
I receive you this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me right now, you are a new person. All your past sins and faults have been forgiven by God. And in his eyes, you are a brand new creature. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now, as a newborn spiritual infant, you should seek the sincere milk of God's Word so that you may grow by it. So read your Bible and pray to the Lord often and seek out other Christians and enter into fellowship with them. And may the Lord bless you now and keep you in everything you do and everything you say. And welcome to the family. The 66 books of the Bible were written by 40 authors, including two kings, two priests, a physician, two fishermen, two shepherds, a legalistic theologian, a statesman, a tax collector, a soldier, a scribe, a butler, and 25 others from equally diversified backgrounds ranging from peasants and poets to statesmen and scholars. They wrote in the wilderness from dungeons in exile, wartime, and peacetime. Over a period of 1,600 years in several countries, on three continents, in three languages, on hundreds of controversial subjects. However, even with all of those variables, this book of books is in perfect harmony with itself, remains in precise agreement with all other factual, historical, archaeological, and scientific works, both current and past. The Bible contains flashes of inspired poetry, as well as detailed history, captivating biography, letters, memoirs, prophetic writings, yet it speaks with astonishing continuity, miraculous accuracy, tells one unfolding story, God's redemption of men and women. The harmony of the variables goes beyond the realm of chance. The Holy Bible is a miracle of God's preservation that can't be denied. Pull out your Bible and turn to page 2,000, <laughs> or roughly 50 pages from the end. <clears throat> now, my question for you is, what are the odds that this 50 pages isn't going to happen the way the first 2,000 say they're going to? Now, you got some weird stuff in this last 50 pages. I'm not kidding you. There's some Star Trek in here. 
There is. There's some sci-fi. Rapture. What's the difference between that and beam me up Scotty? You know what I mean? Heaven, hell, demons, angels, warfare in the supernatural heavenlies over your soul. God, the God of the universe, wants to spend eternity with little old insignificant you. Why would an intelligent person believe the last 50 pages are going to happen the way the Bible says they're going to? Well, my daddy was a bookie. If anybody understands odds, it's me. I was raised with odds all my life. And what I learned is my daddy made an awful lot of money off of long shot gamblers. For everyone who hits a long shot, there sure are lots who lose, aren't there? Is the lottery a good example of that? You don't think much of uh, buying a lottery ticket. I've never bought one, so I don't know if those of you do, but, but uh, I mean, what's the big deal? You want to throw a buck away, throw it in the gutter, buy a lottery ticket, it's the same deal, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Isn't it basically the same deal? Oh, I know, you get a little fun out of it, get a little zing, hope you win, but, you know, <laughs> for, well, you, there was Powerball. They don't have Powerball in California, but I travel around the country, and they have a thing called Powerball. It's an interstate lottery. And a few years ago, it was worth $140 million. Guy from Florida won it all. One guy, $140 million. Now, they sold 200 million tickets. That means they took 60 million off for other purposes, wherever that 60 million goes. And so one ticket was 200 million to one. There were people selling their houses, turning the equity, buying tickets. People selling their life insurance policies, buying tickets, because they didn't understand odds. You know how I many tickets you have to buy to change the odds in your favor when there are 200 million of them? If you spent $100 million, you had a 50% chance of losing. If you spent $100 million, huh? Man, is that wild? They didn't understand. But nobody cares if you're only spending a buck. Okay, here's the deal. If you play the lottery and you win, we're going to give you $140 million, and this time if you lose, we're going to kill you. We're going to sort out the players now, folks. <laughs> Would we have fewer players? Oh, yeah. Oh, we still have some, though. Yeah, desperation does that. But a lot less. Why? We increase the downside risk substantially. Every decision you make considers upside potential versus downside risk. You cross the street, you're betting you can get across the other side before the car smacks you, right? You call it decision-making. With my background, I call it betting. But folks, it's the same deal. Any decision you make, you're weighing upside potential against downside risk. You with me on this? And I'm telling you, the only difference between the word faith and the word bet is the odds. Think about that. The only difference between the word faith and the word bet is the odds. When you're real sure, you got a lot of faith. When you're not so sure, it's a long shot gamble. 
Let's say you owned 199,999,999 lottery tickets. Someone gave them to you, you didn't have to buy them. There is one ticket out against you, and they're doing the drawing tomorrow morning. Would you sleep well? If you understand odds, you would sleep like a baby, knowing in the morning you're going to have 140 million toasty ones in your possession. Faith in the bet? It's just the odds. Any way you slice it. So I'd like to ask the question here. What are the odds that the last 50 pages aren't going to come down the way they're going to? And what are you willing to bet that they're not going to happen the way God says? When the Koran called the world a tabletop held up by two elephants and a turtle, and never told us what the turtle stood on, Job said, when the world thought it was flat, if you read Job, it says the world is a sphere that hangs in nothingness. Doesn't speak to science much, but when it does, it's always on the money. I mean, if you had to bet, and you do. See, you do. Here's what you have to bet on. One, is there or is there not a God? In the United States, 92% of the population believe there is a God. Only 8%, 6 to 8% of the population are atheists. So 92% would say, yeah, there's a God. But betting there's a God and believing there are God are really a couple different kinds of thoughts. You know, well, yeah, there's probably God, but, you know, not that big a deal. So, if, number one, you've got to bet that there is a God or not a God. Now, if you bet that there is and there isn't, what did it cost you? Nothing. I mean, what it, it didn't cost you anything. If you bet that there is and there isn't, it didn't cost you a thing. You led a good life. I mean, you helped people. You made a significant contribution in your lifetime, and you turned to dust, and it's all over, and bingo. But if you bet that there isn't a God, and there is, and that God happens to be a just God, who will allow you to be your own God if that's what you want, that's a little bit scary, folks. Second bet. How about this guy, Jesus? I mean, what do you do with him? He split the calendar in two, right? And his name's a swear word in a lot of circles. Golf course, you'll hear his name more than anybody's. Have you ever heard anybody get mad and say, ah, oh, Jay Cardi? <laughs> Never have, have you? No. But Jesus is the name that's perverted because he's the only name the enemy wants to pervert. So now what do you do with this guy, Jesus? He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. There may be an exception or two to that. I'll cover that ground tonight before it's over, but <laughs> you won't be one of them because you will have heard. So now what do you do with that name? If you bet that Jesus is the way to God the Father, and he's not, and the reincarnationists are right, you'll just go around as many times as it takes to get it right because you'll be fine. You'll be a serious seeker. If you bet that he is the way to God the Father and he's not, and the atheists are right, and you just cease to exist as an entity, you're all in the same boat. Didn't cost you anything. If you bet that he is the Savior and he's not, and the universalists are right, that everybody just ends up in heaven, you'll be fine. If you bet that he is the way, and he's not, and the annihilationists are right, I mean, some people 
cease to exist as an entity and everybody else goes to heaven. But if you bet he's not the savior of the world, and he is, uh, deep weeds. Now, if you say, well, I'm not betting, and you have to bet, and God said you have to bet, so what you're doing is betting you don't have to bet, so that's a bet. <laughs> now, what are the odds that the last 50 pages isn't going to happen the way God says they're going to? And what would you bet? archaeologically correct. No archaeological discovery of any age has ever disproved anything in the book. Folks try to pick it apart, but no concept in this book has ever been disproven. And has it been studied more than any other book ever? I guess I've decided that when what I think is right is in conflict with what this book says is right, <laughs> I've decided I'm wrong. It's an important consideration as we talk about tonight's topic, death. We're going to have a few laughs with it in a minute, maybe a little tender for a moment, but probably going to happen to you, isn't it? Huh? Pretty likely you're going to experience that. I'm not an EMT type. Uh, I've had my first aid class, you know, and I was running a Christian camp in Lake Arrowhead. I had a woman with emphysema. And we were at 6,000 foot level, and so she went up to her cabin to get her Bible and came back down and went up to the chapel. She got lightheaded and fainted. I happened to be there, and I caught her before her head hit the cement. She revived rather quickly, but I was afraid of shock. I told my assistant, go get the travel all. Let's get her to the hospital. It's 20 minutes away. I'm just afraid of shock. Uh, her two lady friends were with her. They joined her in the travel hall. I cut the angle to get the insurance forms, met them at the office, and as they pulled in, one of the ladies said, she stopped breathing. The other one screamed, I can't get a pulse. I jumped in, wedged myself in, hit it. Do you know CPR? No, I don't. You pray. The other one said, I do. I said, you start chest compressions. I'll go mouth to mouth. Here we go. Now, I'm just your little first aider. You guys are all set, but I'm just telling you that little, that little rubber dummy didn't get me ready for this. That little rubber dummy's already dead. <laughs> you know, and it never was alive. And it doesn't matter if you don't do it right on the little rubber dummy. And she'd swallowed her tongue. In those days, you fished it out, and you cleared the airway and jutted the chin and pinched off her nose, and I took my breath for two. And I clamped down on her, and I forgot how hard it was to blow up those two balloons into your lungs. And the first breath went out the side. And I said, I'm thinking, oh, no. Well, what if she dies because I didn't do this right? And I took my breath for two, and I put a really tight seal on there. You know, she had this giant hickey around her mouth from that one, you know, because I, I clamped on her. And I breathed in, and her chest went up and down. And we did that eight times. And I, you guys know, but I'm just telling you, it, it got real hinky about then. It gets real weird. I mean, you're thinking, am I, am I breathing into a dead person? I mean, that just changes everything, you know, and you're still breathing. And the next breath, she came back. And twice more in a 16-minute trip, we did 20 minutes in 16, she stopped. One breath brought her back each time. But by the time we got the hospital, shock had passed. She was fine. She stood up, walked in, totally unassisted. And there was blood everywhere. It was mine. 
I've been sliding back and forth on this metal floor and the travel all and the curves and I went through my jeans and the top layers of skin. I'm bleeding like a stuck hog. I don't know. I was focused, baby. I mean, death will get your attention, you know? Death will get your attention, won't it? So why doesn't yours? Somebody else's gets your attention, but if you're facing the inevitable, why doesn't yours? I mean, you're going to have to deal with it, right? That's scary, folks. But it didn't have to be as scary as it is, because the Bible has an awful lot to say about it. And if the Bible's true, and I believe it is, I'm betting it is. With my whole being, you can tell how committed I am to the issue that it's for real. Now, Paul said, if this deal isn't true, we're really foolish because we're still in our sin. I mean, Paul said, you know, well, what if the deal isn't true? Well, if it isn't, it's still the best way to live your life that there is. And if it is, it's a good deal. Huh? If you write in your Bibles, get ready to write. Now, we're in John 11, verse 25. We just have one, uh, two verses to deal with here. Now, Jesus is speaking to Martha in verse 25, and he says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes, write spiritual birth, or SB, right there over the first believes. In me shall live, write eternal life, right there. Even if he dies, PD, physical death. And everyone who is physically alive, who lives, and believes has spiritual birth while they're physically alive, shall never die. They'll have eternal life. Do you believe this? Now, let me read it again. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection of life. He, she, who believes spiritual birth shall have eternal life when they die a physical death. And everyone who is physically alive and believes spiritual birth while they're physically alive shall never die. They'll have eternal life. Do you believe this? Three kinds of life, three kinds of death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. Physical. Your parents didn't ask you, would you like to be born? They just had you. Here you are. You're stuck. You're not going to have much to say about dying either. One of these days, you're going to die. You know, I'm getting old, but I'm still in pretty good shape. My heartbeat is only 48 beats a minute. My cholesterol is 170. My good cholesterol is 57. My doctor said I have the blood chemistry of a 17-year-old. I just happen to be locked in a really old, decaying body. In other words, I'm going to die healthier. I'm going to die, aren't I? Unless the Lord returns, you're going to die. And the doctors say when your brain waves line out, there's no electricity happening in the synapses in your brain. Pull the plug, baby. Nobody's home. But that's not the biblical definition. Biblical definition of the word death is a little different. It's when your spirit leaves your body. But one of these days, you're going to leave this bod. And you will never lose your conscious awareness if my Bible's right. catch that? You will just relocate. Now, 
Where you relocate depends upon whether or not spiritual birth has occurred. Because you were born spiritually dead. You were born in Adam's sin. You got it from your dad, and he got it from his dad, and he got it from his dad because the sins of the father visit upon the children for generations. This will be a little technical, but pay attention. The virgin birth is a crucial doctrine. If Jesus has an earthly father, he'd be an onion. But with the Holy Spirit as his father, no sin nature. If he's an onion, he doesn't qualify to die for his own sin, let alone ours. But with no sin nature, he qualifies as the sinless sacrifice to finally pay off the principle on all your debt of sin. So the virgin birth is very crucial. You need to understand that if you had a dad or the sperm of a dad... You got Adam's sin. You were born dead. Oh, you were born physically alive, but you were born spiritually dead. Now, I firmly believe little babies go to heaven. Jesus never once condemned a child. Children go to heaven. Up to what age? Nobody knows. I have a sister-in-law in the state hospital in Sonoma. It was about 45 or 6 years old. It was a year and a half old mentally and will never be any older. When she dies, I'm convinced she'll be in heaven because she's a year and a half old. Made it clear, little ones go to heaven. Now, I don't know what age a person becomes accountable for their sin and how smart they are and how, what kind of maturity level they are. I don't know what that is. You know, who knows? You're all there. You're all accountable. You're all old enough. And so if you've never experienced spiritual birth, that means you're still spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Now, you, know, you can't do anything about living or dying. Not much. You can't do anything about eternity. You are going to spend it. You didn't ask to be here, and God, you don't have any options about spending eternity. You will always have conscious awareness. The issue is where? Eternal life, eternal death. But the kicker is the decision has to be made while you're physically alive, because after that, too late. And that's God's rule. I've taken all the verses on heaven and hell, and I've condensed them to a word or a phrase to give you an idea about the two places. If the Bible's right, this is what they're like. Start with heaven, place where God dwells, place of righteousness. You can worship God there. Oh, and you won't have to. Well, not because he demands it. Some people say, in heaven you'll spend eternity praising God, and that sounds really boring to me, but no, no. Do you have such an egocentric God, people would say, that he demands praise forever? And I said, no, no, he doesn't need that from us. He, he's fine if we don't do that. He's just going to be so awesome, it'll be a lot like sneezing. Now, some of you, when you sneeze, you go, and the earwax goes twing like that. But most of you, when you sneeze, you go, you know, and you see God, you're going to go, hallelujah, you know, you'll need to, you blow yourself into a thousand pieces. 
So praise is going to be a get-to, not a have-to. Let's see what else here. No hunger, no thirst, no tears, no death, no sadness, no pain, no hard labor. Love that one. Always be with the Lord, paradise, beautiful, magnificent, nothing unclean. God will be our light. No sun, no moon. No, God will be our light. That means no day, night. That means no seasons. That means no time. No old, no young, no age. System error, system error, <laughs> circular references, circular references, doesn't compute. I mean, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Lots of places to dwell. Took him six days to make this. Is this a pretty place or what? Huh? He's been working on heaven for about 2,000 years. It's liable to be nice. <laughs> Let's see, you'll have new perfect bodies. Huh? Perfect. Physical description uses all that's the ultimate in beauty, gold, silver, jewels, crystal. Retain your personality with your sin nature removed. Serve by angels. Serve by Christ. You worship and reign and serve in proportion to what you've done with your time, talent, and treasure. We all have the same amount. Billy Graham doesn't have any more than you do. Really? God takes care of horizontal influence, your responsibility is vertical relationship, and you have the same amount of money, and you have the same amount of talent, and you have 24 hours to work with, you have 100% of what's been entrusted to you. I'll tell you what that means. I have a nonprofit corporation, let's say you have a million dollars, and you want to give me 100,000 of it. <laughs> How much is that? 10%. Let's say you have 50,000, you want to give me 25,000 of it. How much is that? Let's say you got five bucks, you want to give me five bucks. How much is that? Which gift do I want? Don't get spiritual with me. <laughs> I want the 100000 From God's perspective, which is the greatest gift? Five bucks, because he works with percentages. If Billy Graham is utilizing 70% of his spiritual, or of his God-given natural ability, and utilizing 80% of your God-given natural ability in God's frame of influence that he's given to you, yours will be the greater reward. Because your job is vertical relationship, his is horizontal influence. We all have the same shot here, guy. You'll do everything perfectly. The best here is just a foretaste of heaven. And you understand you don't work your way to heaven. You didn't hear me say that, did you? I said you'll worship, reign, and serve in proportion to what you do, but you'll, you'll be in heaven if you know Christ. He took care of that. I'll tell you about hell. You keep your personality with your sin nature turned loose. Satisfaction is never available. Absence of all that's good. The presence of all that's bad and evil. Unrestrained demonstration of selfish urges. No fulfillment. This is the one that you'll understand. Continual burning, consuming fire, unquenchable fire. Now, some people say it's allegory. It's not going to be literal fire. That may be true. I don't think so, but it may be true. If it is, I want you to understand, then that's worse. Because if you're planning on going there, you want it to be literal. You don't want it to be allegory. Because you see, 
if the worst thing we can use to describe something that's worse than the worst thing we can think of, if it's allegory and we say it's fire, then it's going to be worse than fire. Are you with me? Some people say because it's allegory, that's good. Folks, if it's allegory, that's bad. It's worse than fire. And it can be literal fire and still be outer darkness. Let's go to your basic Bunsen burner. On the outside, you've got a relatively cool flame, fairly cool at the tip, hot in the hot little blue cone right at the tip of the cone. That's the hottest. But right at the base where the material becomes combustible and ignites, there's a place that's devoid of light. The only way you can see it is because of reflected light in the room or around the area. So if you can have a flame big enough, what's the definition of, the abs uh, uh, what's the definition of darkness? Absence of light. If you can have a flame big enough, you can have a flame, still pretty hot at the base of a flame, isn't it? And still have utter outer darkness. Eternal destruction, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, no presence of God, no glory of God's power, lake of fire burns with brimstone and fire, second death, extreme anguish, worse than death itself. There are degrees of punishment, wrath and fury, tribulation, distress, sudden destruction, no escape, pit Pits of nether gloom. Torment goes up forever, ever, and they have no rest. Cindy Lauper said, I can hardly wait to go to hell. All my friends will be there. We'll party forever. Those are not party-hardy screams. And you'll never, you'll never see Satan on a throne with a scepter ruling. The place was created for his eternal torment. And what's interesting <clears throat> is that those who don't want God to be their God will prefer the place. If you want to be your own God, that's part of hell. You get to do that. Let's say you're before God and voice booms out from heaven. By what right do you desire to enter my heaven? You say, I'm a good person. Compared to whom? Hitler! <laughs> uh, you compare favorably to Hitler. He's not the standard here, though. How do you compare to Christ? Well, I don't. He's perfect. I'm certainly not that. Well, then, do you know him well enough that he would, would introduce you to me. And by the accuracy of that statement, your eternal destiny will be determined if my Bible's right. If it were possible to build an apartment building that had one fire escape and there was a fire, how would most of the people escape? The fire escape. Might someone jump from the third story, hit a tree, and survive? Yes but you don't want to bet on it. The odds are lousy. Use the fire escape. God's provided it. It's called Christ. Are you saying, Jay, are you trying to scare me into the kingdom with this hell talk? Yes. <laughs> I mean, your parents scared you, didn't they? Hot, hot, don't touch that, it's hot. Snake, look out, snake. Car, don't step out of that curb. There's a car there. Hell, look out. You're not going to like it, and you don't have to go there. 
Just give up your rights to yourself and don't be a fool and try to worship yourself. Don't be your own God. Take the God that's been given you, buy into that, and you're fine. 